Okay, as you probably gathered, I'm just the warm-up act, um, and we, um, we, Bianca wanted to begin uh, with a very short video that she wanted uh, everyone to watch before uh, we begin uh, the formal proceedings, and um, I'm told that the, the video, which is just two or three minutes, um, exemplifies much of what uh, uh, has inspired this evening's lecture. I will give a more formal introduction, but just for those of you who do not know me, I'm Patricia Chewitt, Executive Dean uh, of the School of Law and hosting this event. So if we can begin with the video. Human rights. What are human rights? Well, human rights are the values which keep society fair, just and equal. They protect children, the elderly, people in care, victims of domestic violence, people with mental health problems, religious groups, teachers, soldiers, and yes, prisoners. They protect all of us. They protect you. Our human rights are protected by law. That means we can do something if our rights are attacked. But not everyone loves human rights. Some want to water them down, even scrap them. Our rights are under threat, so it's time to get educated. Societies used to be controlled by all-powerful rulers who could be horribly unjust. Kings only gave rights to people they liked. Over thousands of years, people fought for equality, and with every hard-won right came new laws that improved how we lived. But in the 20th century, brutal dictators came to power. They ruled by fear, like the kings of the past. Those hard-won rights, they were dismantled on an unimaginable scale. After World War II, the democracies got together and said, never again. They created a simple document setting out the basic rights we all need to live a dignified life. The European Convention puts rights, not rulers, at the heart of our society. Like the right to life, to liberty, to free speech. Then, in 1998, Parliament passed the Human Rights Act, which made our human rights part of UK law. This means public bodies like hospitals and schools must respect our rights, and if they don't, we can go to our local court to enforce them. Now, because of human rights, patients in hospitals must be treated with compassion. Journalists cannot be forced to reveal their sources. Soldiers must be given proper equipment. Gay people have to be treated equally, and the police cannot keep our DNA forever if we're innocent. We have to be treated fairly, at work, at home, in school, anywhere, everywhere. Our human rights are hard won. They're part of our British heritage. We are proud of them. If we lose them, vulnerable people will pay the biggest price. Know your rights, celebrate them, protect them. Share this video if you think human rights matter. Go on, share it. Thank you and can we welcome our speaker? So can I begin by thanking you all for coming out in force to what is the sixth annual lecture of the School of Law at Birkbeck. I've already introduced myself um, and it is my very great pleasure to welcome our distinguished speaker, Ms Bianca Jagger, who for over three decades has been a voice for the most vulnerable members of society, campaigning for human rights, civil liberties peace, social justice, and environmental protection throughout the world. Since 2006, these campaigns have been supported by the Bianca Jagger Human Rights Foundation, which Bianca established and is now president and chief executive. The school hosts Ms. Jagger at a particularly significant point in the nation's affairs. 
Our relationship with two European institutions that have given positive shape to individual and group rights globally is uncertain. Whatever the causes and manifestations of its current crisis and the current forms of instability, the European Union was the impetus behind principles of race, gender, sexual orientation, age and disability, equality, those principles that are enshrined in our domestic laws. The upcoming referendum will be decisive in how these still evolving equality principles mature and expand. But more pertinent to the themes of this year's lecture, the European Institution of Human Rights Norms and Principles, derived from the Convention on Human Rights and of course upheld uh, by the European Court of Human Rights, is to be weakened and what remains realigned to a British Bill of Rights. There is no more fitting person to bring to us to full realisation of the dangers of being wrested from these and other institutions that support equality and human rights, including, of course, regional human rights instruments in Africa and Asia. No more fitting person than Ms Jagger, who can count among her many prestigious international awards, the Right Livelihood Award, also known as the Alternative Nobel Prize, given in 2004 for commitment and dedicated campaigning over a wide range of issues, including the abolition of the death penalty, the prevention of child abuse, the rights of indigenous peoples and, and the environment that supports them, and the prevention and healing of armed conflicts. Not only that award, but Ms. Jagger holds the World Citizenship Award uh, from the Nuclear Peace Age Foundation, 2006, the World Achievement Award, 2004, the National Association of Criminal Defence Lawyers Champion of Justice Award, 2000, and Abolitionist of the Year Award by the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, 1996, and I name just a few indicative awards. Each and every one of Ms Jagger's campaigns speak to the urgent need to extend, not contract, the structure of human rights protection around the globe. For example, in October 2014, as part of a sustained set of interventions in relation to violence against women and girls, the Human Rights Foundation held an Arts for Human Rights benefit gala at uh, the Phillips Auction House, which was the second uh, gala event of its kind. The Foundation is currently running a campaign in advance of the UN Climate Conference uh, this, in December in Paris, calling world leaders to prevent catastrophic climate change uh, and to commit to CO2 reductions. As a school of law, we prioritise issues of human rights and social justice. We have prioritised these in our taught programmes and in our published research. Our most established master's programmes are in the fields of human rights and international economic law, justice and development. 
The Institute of Criminal Policy Research, which is based in the school, is developing a new program of research on prisons and imprisonment throughout the world. It is a program that aims to promote policies and practices relating to imprisonment which are humane, compliant with international human rights standards and support the rule of law. And the Institute of Criminal Policy Research is undoubtedly indebted to Ms. Jagger's tireless campaigns on behalf of prisoners on death row, uh, including very recent campaigns. But perhaps the most significant connection between the School of Law and our distinguished guest speaker's work is to be found in the work of our late colleague and one of the founding members of the School of Law at Birkbeck, Patrick McCausland. As many in the audience will know, the last 20 to 30 years of Patrick's academic life was devoted to issues of social justice, specifically to the urgent need for land reform in various regions, uh, particularly within countries in Africa. The McCausland Fund for Social Justice was launched by us last year, and I'm delighted now to take the opportunity of tonight's wonderful event to announce uh, to you and to uh, Duet and for, uh, Fiona McCausland, who I hope are in the audience, to announce uh, to you that this annual lecture will from now be named the Patrick McCausland Annual Law Lecture. We could not have a more fitting speaker for this transitional moment in the life of the annual lecture and the intellectual and political life of this law school. And it is my sincere hope that tonight's occasion will bring about future collaboration between the School of Law, Ms. Jagger, and her foundation. So speaking to the title, Why We Must Defend the Human Rights Act, I give to you Council of Europe Goodwill Ambassador, International Union for Conservation of Nature, Bonn Challenge Ambassador, Senior Fellow of the Centre for International Governance, Innovation, and Member of the Executive Director's Leadership Council of Amnesty International, Ms. Bianca Jagger. Thank you, Patricia, for your kind introduction. Um, I'm very humble um, for all those wonderful things you said about me. I don't think I truly deserve them. Um, I would like to thank the School of Law for inviting me to speak today. It is indeed an honor and a pleasure to be delivering the sixth annual law lecture. Unlike most universities, Burbank was funded as an open and aspirational institution. It provides to, to those who work the opportunity to study. Birbeck challenges the idea that education is reserved for the privileged. It is one of the reasons why I was very happy when I was asked to deliver this lecture. The School of Law at Birkbeck is well known as one of the leading law schools in London and renowned for its critical approach to law. 
thank you all for coming tonight. It is really heartening to see you and to see so many of you that have decided to come to listen to this lecture instead to going out on a Friday evening. Thank you very much. <laughs> the topic I will address, defending the Human Rights Act, is both close to my heart and the foundation of my work. And I would like to thank um, the members of my staff, without who I couldn't do what I do at the Bianca Jagger Human Rights Foundation. I'd like to thank Rob Casson, who is here. Thank you, Rob, and for having been instrumental in making me appear here tonight. To um, Sonia Marsh, who is also here. Thank you, Sonia, for all your help. And to um, Kat Triona Ward, who unfortunately is not here, but who was with me until a few hours ago, making sure that this speech was um, right. And as well, I would like to thank Thomas Collar, who is not here, but who has been instrumental in helping me at the Bianca Jagger Human Rights Foundation. Before I talk to you, I'd like to say that the issue of the Human Rights Act, that I was inspired by Lord Anthony Lester's QC, uh, to be interested and to be passionate about defending the Human Rights Act. So uh, in absence, I would like to thank him for everything he has done to enlighten me on this issue. I'm here today to mount a defense of the Human Rights Act in response to the threat it is facing and present the case of why we must protect it. The need to stand up for the Human Rights Act has never been more urgent. The Conservative Party's determination to repeal the Act coupled with the persistent misrepresentation of the Act by sections of the British media is a threat to the future of human rights of the of human right and of the Human Rights Act. Uh, it has been subjected, subject to false rhetoric, scaremongering, and myths. It is perhaps fitting that it is here in Senate House, the building that inspired George Orwell, infamous Ministry of Truth, that I will address these claims. I will first talk about the history of human rights in the UK, which culminated in the Human Rights Act. I will aim to dispel some of the human rights myths that have plagued the legislation. I will address the frivolous claims made by the Conservative Party that the Human Rights Act undermines parliamentary sovereignty and that the Act poses a threat to national security. And finally, I will argue that now more than ever, we need to protect our rights against the expansion of a state powers and surveillance often justified under the guise of threat to our national security. Human rights 
are the principles that ensure a fair, just, and equal society. They protect everyone, including children, the elderly, people in care, victims of domestic violence, religious groups, teachers, soldiers, immigrants, and prisoners. They protect me, and they protect you. And it is important that we never forget that. Our human rights are enshrined in law, which means we have avenues of recourse if those rights are attacked. But some want to water them down, even scrap them. I believe that the United Kingdom has arrived at a critical moment in its history and in the history of human rights legislation. Our rights are under threat. And perhaps after you hear what I have to say, you will consider that what I'm saying is not exaggerated. I'm deeply concerned that the Conservatives want to sacrifice our human rights to fit their political agenda. Before the end of the year, there will be 12-week public consultation on the new proposed British Bill of Rights, which is intended to replace the Human Rights Act. The government claims that the British Bill does not mean that the UK will pull out of the European Convention on Human Rights. But can we trust the Conservative government's assurances? We will not know what the bill will actually contain until the draft is published, which of course has not yet. The Conservative government will like the British Bill of Rights to skip the usual legislative scrutiny of a green or white paper and go straight to the House of Commons. I wonder why. <laughs> the Joint Select Committee on Human Rights has raised some critical questions which the Conservative government must answer. One, can the government assure us that they have officially ruled out withdrawing from the European Convention on Human Rights? Can they assure us that they have ruled out ending the UK obligation under international law, the Article 46, to abide by the final judgment of the European Court of Human Rights in any case to which they are parties? And does Prime Minister David Cameron intend to replace the Human Rights Act, the culmination of 800 years of evolving human rights legislation, with a British Bill of Rights in 12 weeks? I cannot fathom how he could consider 12 weeks long enough to deal with such a complicated and contentious issue. Does the government intend to publish a white paper, draft clauses, or a draft bill for pre-legislative scrutiny? How will the Tories ensure the consultation of the Volve institution and that the views of different parts of the UK are heard? What consideration has been given to the possible impact of changes to human rights framework on Britain's standing abroad and role of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office uh, in the consultation? What are the proposals for wider public consultation? Will proposals and submissions be made available on the UK government websites? These are critical questions which I hope the government will be giving us an answer. Alan Travis, the Guardian Home Affairs editor, writes,
As it stands at the moment, the Conservatives' published plans amount to little more than a scribbling on the back of a fag packet. I fear that we have been led down the garden path. Philip Sands, QC and Professor of International Law at University College London, served on the last government's commission on a bill of rights and as a result, after he participated, he writes in the Guardian newspaper, in the course of our deliberation, it became clear that three of the four Tory members um, appointed by Cameron actively wish for the UK to leave the convention and that one aim of the British bill was to facilitate their objective. That desire, not publicly expressed in the face of opposition around the country, led me to join Helena Kennedy in departing from the majority and opposing a British Bill of Rights. Baroness Kennedy of the show QC calls it desperately dangerous to attempt to draft a British Bill of Rights in the midst of a highly charged political debate of a Britain's relationship with the European Union. Human rights have been, as you heard before, at the center of my work for over three decades. After I received the Right Livelihood Award, otherwise known as the Alternative Nobel Prize, I decided in 2005 to fund the Bianca Jagger Human Rights Foundation, to be a force for change and a voice for the most vulnerable members of society. The BJHRF is dedicated to defending human rights, achieving social justice, addressing the threat of climate change, and speaking up for future generations. Something else I'd like to mention to all of you is that part of the work of the Bianca Jagger Human Rights Foundation is the work that I do on social media. Uh, and I find that social media is a very important platform to speak about those issues. So I am on Twitter at Bianca Jagger, I am on Google+, on LinkedIn, and on Facebook. And I do not use it to say where I had dinner last night, <laughs> but really to address the issues that are troubling me. And sometimes to make people not feel that everything I say is hardcore, I also speak about music and about art. Human rights in Great Britain have been hard won over many years. Courageous women and men have struggled for uh, them for centuries. The Human Rights Act itself has been 800 years in the making. And it is not an exaggeration uh, uh, that it has taken that long to be able to arrive to the Human Rights Act. Its history is part of a great tradition, the growth of democracy the decline of tyrannical kings, the birth of ethics, the abolition of civil liberties and philosophical thought. On 15th of June, 1215, King John I of England approved a document written by a group of the country's leading noblemen who were unhappy that their rights were being ignored. It was the first draft what came to be one of the most important and influential legal chapters the Magna Carta, which set out the right of habeas corpus and began a tradition of civil rights in Britain that still exists today. 
And I just like to say a little thing about myself uh, and why all of this has so much meaning and is so important to me. I was born in Nicaragua. The idea of habeas corpus was a dream and something that we couldn't achieve or obtain. I lived under a dictatorship, uh, the Somoza regime, which was in Nicaragua for 43 years. So perhaps that will give you a sense of why all of these it's so important and continues to be so important to me. Later, in 1647, the Levelers, a group of English political activists, produced the pioneering An Agreement of the People, which set out a list of constitutional principles calling for liberty of conscience in matters of religion, freedom from conscription, and demanded that laws apply equally to everyone. There must be no discrimination on grounds of tenure, estate, charter, degree, birth, or place. In 1689, following the Glorious Revolution, an Act of Parliament passed the Bill of Rights, which enshrined in law the freedom to petition the monarch, a precursor to political protest rights, the freedom from cruel and unusual punishment a precursor to the prohibition of torture and the freedom from being fined without trial. There are some great democracies who have not really adhered to the concept of ending cruel and unusual punishment. And I mention that because I work on the death penalty or against the death penalty or for the abolition of the death penalty and work in the United States who doesn't consider that the death penalty is a cruel and unusual punishment. Throughout the 18th and early 19th century, Enlightenment thinkers wrote and discussed philosophy of liberty, the notion of the freedom of the press and equality between men and women. Their ideas are the cornerstone of human right and the rule of law today. Among this was Thomas Paine, who strongly influenced the American and French Revolution. He spoke of the rights and the responsibility we owe each other. A declaration of rights is, by reciprocity, a declaration of duties. Also, whatever is my right as a man is also a right of another, and it becomes my duty to guarantee as well as to possess. Another important figure in the development of human rights in Britain is John Stuart Mill. In On Liberty, he wrote that democracy does not prevent the tyranny of the majority over unpopular minorities, and that there must be checks on Parliament's power to prevent it from passing law that discriminate against particular groups. And I'm sure that this makes you think about what's happening at the moment. In her prophetic 1792 book, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, Mary Wollstonecraft argued that women should not be seen as ornaments or property to be bought and sold, that women are human beings deserving of the same fundamental rights as men. In addition to equal rights for women and dignity for all, Wollstonecraft also called for a national educational education system. Her ideas, which were revolutionary for their time, and in some ways is still revolutionary today, um, 
politicians and author, Horace Walpole described Wollstonecraft as a hyena on petticoats. It is worth noting that over 200 years after Wollstonecraft wrote, we have yet to realize a vision of a fair and equal society for men and women. Progress towards democracy continued throughout the 19th century. In 1832, the Great Reform Act gave more people the right to vote and increased the electorate from around 366,000 to 650,000 people, about 80% of the total adult male population. In 1833, England passed the Slavery Abolition Act, having outlawed the slave trade throughout the British Empire um, and ordered the gradual abolition of slavery in all British colonies in 1807. Slavery has been made illegal in Scotland in 1778. France abolished the slave trade in 1794. And Denmark's ban on trade to the West Indies came into force in 1803 and the US followed suit in 1864 after the Civil Rights War. Forgive me, after the Civil War. The Reform Acts of 1867 and 1884 expanded the electorate, eventually giving all men over 21 the vote. After the First World War, in 1918, the Representation of the People Act gave the vote to all women over 30. And in 1928, the Equal Franchise Act finally gave all women over 21 the vote. The European Convention was created in direct response to the atrocities committed in World War II. The rise of power of powerful and ruthless dictators, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, um, Mussolini and Franco, um, the targeted of bombing of civilians and the genocide that took place in the extermination camp call into question the balance of power between states and citizens. The democracies of Europe vow never again. On the 7th of May, 1948, in an address to Congress of Europe at The Hague, Winston Churchill stated, the movement for European unity must be a positive force. In the center of our movement stands the idea of a charter of human rights, guarded by freedom and sustained by law. Eleanor Roswell was a driven force in drafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was agreed upon by the United Nations um, General Assembly in 1948. A year later, work began on drafting the European Convention on Human Rights in Strasbourg by parliamentarians from 12 member states, but it was largely drafted by British conservative lawyers. In March 1951, Britain became the first country to ratify the convention. A session had broad consensus among the major political parties in the UK. The rights contained in the convention can be traced back to the Magna Carta and to other long-established UK laws. 
Peter Oborn and Jesse Normans write that the convention marked and continues to mark a vital codification of the common law, not its repudiation. Churchill promotes the convention and David Maxwell Fife, later Lord Chancellor, had a key role in drafting it. The United Kingdom and the European Convention have a long shared history. Including Britain, 47 countries have agreed to the convention, which provides civil and political rights to all citizens. Human rights ideals continue to permeate British law between then and now. The death penalty was abolished in the UK in 1964, Wayne Evans and Peter Allen were the last people to be executed in this country on the morning of August 13. In 1975, the Sex Discrimination Act was passed and the Race Relation Act followed a year later. This act made discrimination on grounds of ethnicity or gender illegal and introduced the concept of indirect discrimination. As Lord Lester of Hearn Hill QC said in a speech earlier this year, it took another 30 years of campaigning to achieve the Human Rights Act in 1998. Lord Lester played a pivotal role in making the European Human Rights Convention directly enforceable in British courts. His paper, Democracy and Individual Rights, called for incorporation of the European Convention on Human Rights into British law in 1968. He introduced two private members' bill on the subject, which became models for the Human Rights Act 1998. In his speech this year, Anthony Lester described the Human Rights Act as a brilliantly designed and drafted, clear and concise. He explained that the Human Rights Act required all three branches of government to respect the convention rights, not only the judges, the Human Rights Act respect our unique system of parliamentary sovereignty. It does not empower the courts to strike down legislation. Instead, they may issue a declaration of incompatibility and the choice of remedy is a matter for government and parliament subject to the victim's right to seek redress in Strasbourg. The long and proud history of the Human Rights Act undermines the claim of those who want to repeal it, that it was a culture imposed by Europe. According to James Sweeney of the Human Rights Center at Durham University, the idea that human rights are alien to the UK is a myth. Even with the checker past over slavery and colonialism, the UK has a long history of thinking about civil liberties. The Human Rights Act was given royal assent in 1998 and came into force in the year 2000. When Parliament passed the Human Rights Act, it made our human rights part of UK law. This means that public bodies, like hospitals and schools, must respect our rights and we have to be treated fairly at work, at home, at school, anywhere and everywhere. The main purpose of the Act is to incorporate into British law the rights and protection contained in the European Convention on Human Rights. 
it was one of the cornerstones of labor constitutional reform, which I hesitated before I made this quote, uh, Blair described as the biggest program of change democracy ever proposed. Vernon Bogdonor, Emeritus Gresham Professor of Law and Researcher Professor at King College, London, describes Labour's introduction of the Human Rights Act as the cornerstone of the new constitution. The intention of the Human Rights Act was to bring rights home by integrating human rights into the work of the government, parliament, and the judiciary. The human right has two important features I would like to highlight. First, so far as it is possible to do so, acts of parliament must be read and given effect in a way that is compatible with the European Convention. If it is not possible for judges to read down other legislation in this way, then all that the courts can do is to say so and refer to the incompatibility back to parliament. The second important provision in the Human Rights Act is that UK courts must take into account any relevant decision of the European Court of Human Rights when deciding a human rights case. The Human Rights Act has come under sustained attack from the Conservative Party, as well as some factions of the British media. The Conservative Party 2015 manifesto commits the government to tearing up the Human Rights Act and replacing it with the British Bill of Rights. This pledge appears twice in the manifesto. First, under the heading, Fighting Crime and Standing Up for Victims, and later, under the section, Real Change in Our Relationship with the EU. Elements within the Conservative Party have long wanted to repeal the Human Rights Act. In a conference speech in 2006, David Cameron said, we will abolish the Human Rights Act and put a new British Bill of Rights in its place. After May's general election, he said he wants to break the formal link between British courts and the European Court of Human Rights. Home Secretary Theresa May has gone even further and suggested that the Tories may have to resort to the so-called nuclear option of leaving the European Convention of Human Rights. This even more drastic threat is rumored to be dividing the Tory ranks. At the 2013 Conservative Party conference, she said, if leaving the European Convention is what it takes to fix our human rights law, that is what we should do. So as you can see, when I said that the Human Rights Act is under threat, I am not exaggerating. If the plan is carried out, it will undermine our fundamental protection against state interference, scraping the Human Rights Act and replacing it with a diluted National Bill of Rights will jeopardize the safeguards that hold our government to account. While this controversial pledge was notably absent in the 2015 Conservative Party conference, I have great doubts that the Tories will retreat from this manifesto pledge. I would like to refute three arguments made by the Conservatives in the case for repealing the Human Rights Act. Their claims that the Human Rights Act undermines parliamentary sovereignty. 
that the European Convention on Human Rights goes beyond its original mandate uh, and that the Human Rights Act is simply a villain chapter. What's sad about this is that I have sat recently next to some very distinguished um, lawyers uh, who claim and support what I'm going to tell you and have fallen to believe these fictions. The constitutional principle of parliamentary sovereignty in the UK makes parliament the supreme legal authority. No parliament can create laws that bind future parliaments and no court can directly overrule its legislation. Opponents of the Human Rights Act often claim that the act provides the judiciary with exclusive control over the laws of the land, allowing judges to override the will of parliament. This could not be further from the truth. The masterful drafting of the Human Rights Act preserved the principle of parliamentary sovereignty. The only powers the Human Rights Act provide the UK judiciary when faced with a potential conflict between a statute and the convention is to issue a declaration of incompatibility under section four of the act. Such a declaration does not more than flag up to parliament a conflict between the convention rights and legislation. It does not annul or repeal legislation. The sovereignty of parliament is maintained. Contrasting this power with other jurisdictions, the late Lord Bingham stated, the courts here cannot like the court of most other countries, and now supersede or strike down any act of parliament as inconsistent with the convention. The most they can do is declare an act to be incompatible with the convention. Such a declaration has no practical effect whatsoever, Lobbingen said in his keynote speech to Liberty. The second point I want to make in relation to parliamentary sovereignty is the claim that the Human Rights Act imports judgment from the European Court of Human Rights into British law. This again is a perversion of the truth. Rather, the Human Rights Act allows British courts and British judges to decide on cases concerning basic rights rather than referring them to the European Court in Strasbourg, as was the case before the year 2000. In fact, in the Human Rights Act is repealed then for as long as Britain remains a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, British courts will have no say and decision will be made by the European Court. The Conservative claims that repealing the Human Rights Act and passing a British Bill of Rights will allow British judges to decide on British human rights cases restoring sovereignty. This claim is misleading and incorrect. Under the HRA justice, is closer to the ordinary person, more accessible and less expensive than before. Repealing the HRA will force individuals to exhaust all judicial avenues in the UK uh, before then taking their case to the European Court. This will deny people their justice, but will not stop the UK bound under the European Convention. The relevant section of the HRA for parliamentary sovereignty in section two, bracket one, which read, a court or tribunal 
determining a question which has a reason in connection with a convention right must take into account any judgment, decision, declaration, or advisory opinion of the European Court of Human Rights. This wording was explicitly selected to ensure that UK courts are not bound by the European Court. During the passage of the Human Rights Act, the Conservative peer, Lord Kinsland, suggested an amendment to make European Court of Human Rights case law-binding at British courts. In response, Lord Irvine, then Lord Chancellor, replied, we believe that clause two gets it right in requiring domestic courts to take into account judgment of the European Court, but not making them binding. When judges in the Supreme Court wish to depart from decisions of the European Court due to fundamental disagreement, they can and can do it. For example, in the Al-Kawaja case, Imad Al-Kawaja 55, a consultant physician was convicted of indecently assaulting two female patients under hypnosis. One of the women who had multiple sclerosis killed herself before the trial in 2004, and her written statement was read to the jury. The Supreme Court referred the question of written testimony to the European Court of Human Rights. They determined that criminal conviction based solely on decisively or here say evidence could breach Article 6 right to a fair trial as the right to examine a witness containing Article 6 bracket 3 bracket D would be denied. However, and this is very important to understand, in the judgment, the Supreme Court explained that the European Court of Human Rights had now considered, not considered the substantial safeguards in the UK criminal procedure in relation to hearsay evidence, which could not be tested through cross-examination in commenting on section two of the human right in the Supreme Court. Lord Phillips stated that there will be rare occasions where the domestic court has concerns as to whether a decision of the Strasbourg court sufficiently appreciates or accommodates particular aspect of our domestic process. In such a circumstances, it is open to the domestic court to decline to follow the Strasbourg decision, given reasons for adopting this course. According to research by Alice Donald, Jane Gordon, and Philip Litch, the UK has a very low rate of defeat at Strasbourg, uh, both in absolute terms and in comparison with the selection of other states. Of all the applications brought against the UK and the European Court of Human Rights in the past decade, the vast majority fell at the first hurdle. Only 3% were declared admissible. And even a smaller proportion, 1.8%, eventually resulted uh, in a judgment finding at least one violation. In other words, the UK lost only one in 50 cases brought against uh, it in Strasbourg. The rate of defeat falls to 1.4%, around one in 70. If judgments are adjusted to show the effect of repetitive cases, the latest figures for 2011 
show a rate of defeat of just 0.5% or one in 200. So, as you can see, this completely, completely dispelled and completely shows that the arguments against the Human Rights Act are false. The researchers explain that this low rate of defeat is due to the fact that the European Court of Human Rights is primarily a supervisory, supervisory body of subsidiary to the national systems that is safeguarding human rights. This is explicitly recognized by the European Convention, which state that the European Court may only deal with the matter after all domestic remedies have been exhausted. A second reason why the Conservatives claim they want to scrap the Human Rights Act is that the European Court of Human Rights has developed something called mission creep, a term that means that it goes beyond its original mandate. They dislike the Strasbourg principle of interpretation that regards the Convention as a living instrument. They assert that even allowing for necessary changes over the decades, the European Court of Human Rights has used its living instrument doctrine to expand convention rights into new areas beyond what the framers of the convention had in mind when they signed up to it. In March 1st, 2005, in the historic case Roger versus Simon, the US Supreme Court held for the first time that the 8th and 14th Amendment forbid the execution of offenders who were under the age of 18 when their crimes were committed. In changing its interpretation uh, of the amendment, the court reaffirmed the necessity of referring to the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a mature society. The US Supreme Court has referred to the laws of other countries and to international authorities as instructive for its interpretation of the Eighth Amendment prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. They note the abolition of the juvenile death penalty by other nations that share our Anglo-American heritage and by the leading members of the Western European community. And I mention this to you because it was extremely important in the work that I was doing. For many years, uh, many of us, including uh, Amnesty International, we campaigned um, for, the, uh, for making illegal the execution of juveniles under 18. And of course, we, um, we brought and we mentioned um, uh, as part of our campaign that first, the death penalty didn't exist anymore. Uh, uh, within the countries of the European Union. But the idea of executing juveniles under 18 was abhorrent. And I remember quite clearly, I was quite shocked when they invoked the evolving standards of human rights and uh, when they decided to uh, make it illegal, the execution of juveniles under 18. The convention is a living instrument this is to be welcomed, not fear. In 1950, when the convention was drafted, homosexuality was illegal across much of Europe. Marital rape, corporal punishment, and discrimination against illegitimate children were all legal. 
the internet, mobile phone, an IVF treatment, for example, could not have been contemplated. If the convention were not able to adapt and evolve, individuals would have no legal protection against new threat to the human right. Without mission creep, many human rights victims would have been left unprotected. For example, a strictly literal interpretation of the convention will deny protection to the victims of trafficking. In 2010, in the case of Rancev versus Cyprus and Russia, the European Court held that trafficking fell within the prohibition on slavery in Article 4 of the Convention. Furthermore, judicial interpretation is common to all legislation and has been since long before the Human Rights Act. As Baroness Hale, the Deputy President of the Supreme Court said, it is in a comparatively rare case that an Act of Parliament has to be construed and applied exactly as it would have been applied when it was first passed. A statutes are said to be always speaking and so must be made to apply to situation which will never uh, have been contemplated when they first, when they first, uh, when they were first passed. The conservatives' argument of mission creep is not the assault on our legal system they purported to be. In fact, it is a core aspect of our common law system. Baroness Hale continues by providing examples of judicial interpretation of British law, and um, there is many other examples. There is the example of DNA, uh, something utterly unimaginable to the convention drafter. However, in S and Mapper versus the United Kingdom, the European Court of Human Rights held that retaining the DNA sample of a void of 11 who was arrested but later acquitted violate his Article 8. And third claim the Tories level against the Human Rights Act is that it's nothing more than a villain's charter, a charter that protects foreign terrorists and criminals. To the contrary, fry from villain's charter, the Human Rights Act protects the most vulnerable in all society, including child victims of trafficking, women subject to domestic and sexual violence, those with disabilities, and victims of crimes. The debate over vote for prisoner is one of the most controversial human rights questions. The European Court of Human Rights has repeatedly ruled that banning all prisoners from voting is a breach of the human right. Although the UK has promised to abide by the court decision, no other institution, UK or otherwise, can force Parliament to change the law on prisoners' vote. The issue goes back to 2001, when three prisoners challenged the ban. The European Court of Human Rights had the case in 2005, in Hearst versus United Kingdom. Its judgment said that nobody forfeits his convention rights merely because of his, state, his status as a person detained following conviction and rule out automatic disenfranchisement based purely on what might offend public opinion. The court felt that there hadn't been any substantive debate by members of the legislature on whether a ban on all convicted prisoners voting was a measure way of preventing crime and enhancing civil responsibility and respect for the rule of law. 
the Grand Chamber of the European Court concluded that the law is disproportionate, a blunt instrument. The European Court did not say that all prisoners must have the vote. And I repeat, the European Court did not say that all prisoners must, must have the vote. And it remains up to the UK to decide how to change the law. So it is in keeping with the convention. So you see some of those examples that I give you, how different they really are than what is being claimed. I was going to talk to you about Abu Qatada, but I don't know if that will be uh, too long for you, and what I will do is I will give my speech so you can read that. Um, but what I want to say is sections of the media and the tractors of human rights legislation expand the case of Abu Qatada as an example of the perils of the Human Rights Act, the delays it causes, the frustration it caused UK governments, the 1.7 legal cost, even more disturb disturbing than the media's allegation of Qatar's words and action in the closed court was the existence of action uh, of the secret court system in itself. Qatar was punished despite neither him nor his lawyer seeing or contesting the evidence. He did not have the public hearing that was his right under Article 6 of the European Convention. Let's think about this. This was something that I found very interesting. An investigative journalist, John Dancing, puts it this way. If someone under torture made a statement that you had committed a heinous crime, would you consider that evidence against you to be safe or fair? Would you be willing to be extradited to another country or even deported back to your home country based on such an accusation obtained under torture? Would you be happy to be accused of a serious crime without being told the basis or evidence behind that accusation? Would you be happy to be punished for a crime for which you hadn't been tried or convicted? Rather than attack the Human Rights Act, the Tory should have been contemplating the time they squander fighting against the right to a fair trial. They should have been establishing procedures to ensure international agreement, such as the one made in this case with Jordan, with the guarantees against torture firmly in place and verifiable. Abu Qatar's case demonstrates that the Human Rights Act succeeded in preventing torture. We should celebrate the fact that the Human Rights Act enshrined in British law the notion that all humans are equal, you, me, foreigner, criminals, and even those human beings we may not like. Most applied equally to everyone. There must be no discrimination on grounds of tenure, state, charter, degree, birth, or place. Shortly after Abu Qatada's retrial in Jordan, Bernard Keenan, a former immigration solicitor who is now researching national security law and the use of secret evidence at the London School of Economics, wrote in The Guardian, we should take the time to reflect carefully on Abu Qatada and the Human Rights Act, because it throws into stark relief two views of our society. One is a society 
with robust ideas of justice and fairness and system for protecting them. The other is a society so obsessed with controlling external threats that it risks destroying itself in the process. We should ask ourselves which one we prefer to be. On Wednesday, November 4, 2015, the draft investigative power bill was unveiled by Home Secretary Theresa May. This disturbing proposed legislation confers extraordinary powers on the police and security services. The most controversial power that is proposed is the storage of everyone's internet connections records, tracking the websites they have visited, which is banned as too intrusive, even in the US and every European country, including Britain. The bill requires internet and phone companies to keep internet connection records, tracking every website you visited for a maximum of 12 months, but will not require a warrant for the police, security service, or other bodies to access the data. Local authority will be banned from accessing internet records. The unprecedented access represent a challenge to Article 8 of the Convention, respect for private and family life. I am concerned that under the new legislation, politicians will be empowered to decide when it is appropriate to invade our privacy and what, and there will be no judicial check, some balance. As well as the sustained political attack on the Human Rights Act and European Convention, there have been numerous human rights myths perpetrated by factions of the British media. And I hope you would like these examples. Many of you may remember the ludicrous example Theresa May gave at the Conservative Party conference in 2011 that under the Human Rights Act, a Bolivian student could not be deported because he had a pet cat. The male's headline for this story read, an illegitimate immigrant was allowed to stay in Britain because he had a cat. The press twisted the details of the case and it became a catalyst for anti-immigration feelings. Perhaps Theresa May must read in the tabloids and not the decision of the Immigration Tribunal. This is spurious claim. Uh, concerns the decision of the Asylum and Immigration Tribunal by senior immigration judge Gleason. Judge Gleason explained that the reconsideration of the deportation order was granted in reference to the inappropriate weight placed on the appellant having to leave because not only his partner, but also because their joint cat. The judge, rather cheekily, uh, anonymized the cat's name, and all at the end of the judgment stated, the immigration judge determination is upheld, and the cat, in bracket, redacted, need no longer fear having to adopt to Bolivian mice. <laughs> May, May was wrong. The cat is out of the bag. The Home Office lost the case not because of a cat, but because they failed to give sufficient weight 
to the Bolivian students' long-term relationship and rights under Article 8 of the European Convention, which ensures a right to respect for one's private and family life. Then there is another great one, and I will tell you, this was not an easy speech to prepare, but this example uh, make us have a fun time at the office. <laughs> another outrageous claims is that police gave fried chicken to a burglar because of his human right. The truth is that in 2006, a suspected car thief fleeing police was besieged on a roof for 20 hours. During the course of the standoff, the police negotiating team gave the man Kentucky fried chicken and cigarettes. It was widely reported uh, that this was to protect his well-being and human right, which was clearly false. There is no human right to Kentucky fried chicken, <laughs> or indeed to provide with any food in such a scenario. Rather, the police were using general negotiating tactics to encourage him to come down from the roof. Now, but that's not all. There is the porn myth uh, surrounding the Human Rights Act. It is that prisoners have the right to access hardcore pornography because of human rights. This stemmed from a 2001 case where a prisoner tried to obtain pornographic material, a case which remains misinterpreted by the sections of the press more than 13 years later. Most recently, on the 28th of September 2014, the Mail Online published a clarification and correction. Perhaps it was so buried that no one could see it. They wrote a common article on 13 August 2014 about the European Court of Human Rights said that they supplied that the supply of heroin and gay porn to prisoners was never, was now a right. We are happy to clarify that this was not meant to be taken seriously and it is not the case. Well, we should remember that when we are reading some of the story on the Daily Mail. <laughs> the case was totally misinterpreted by the Daily Mail and many other newspapers have reproduced the errors since, as Amnesty correctly reported, the court actually denied him permission even to bring the claim, let alone have it heard in court, on the basis there was clearly no arguable case that his human right had been breached. Importantly, repealing the Human Rights Act will have serious implication for the devolution arrangement in Scotland and Northern Ireland. One of the most potent arguments for retaining and indeed strengthening human rights protection in the UK is that a retreat from this protection will send a clear message to the world that personal rights and freedoms can be set aside when they become inconvenient to the state. Liberty suggested that the UK threats to repeal the Human Rights Act are already being felt around the world. Venezuela cited the UK's wavering on human rights as justification for ignoring obligation under the American Human Rights Convention. In a speech to the Kenyan, to the Kenyan Parliament in 2014 concerning his charges for war crimes, Kenyan President Ohura Kenyatta cited Prime Minister David Cameron's attack on human rights in his own defense, saying, 
the push to defend sovereignty is not unique to Kenya or Africa. Very recently, the Prime Minister of the UK committed to reasserting the sovereign primacy of his parliament over the decision of the European Human Rights Court. He has even threatened to quit that court. In Strasbourg, in October 2013, the bereaved families of the Bestland massacre spoke of the importance of the Strasbourg court in their struggle for justice and argue that a future UK withdrawal will be a catastrophe for the rule of law in Russia. They say the European Court of Law uh, of Human Rights exists as a deterrent to totalitarian regime like Russia. It is perhaps no great surprise that the same conservative government, which is fighting to scrap the Human Rights Act, has lately been ushering a series of authoritarian leaders into number 10, where they have been welcomed with open wallets. <laughs> David Cameron, in October 2015, welcomed President uh, Xi Jinping of China, a country with an appalling record on human rights abuses. Xi Jinping stayed at Buckingham Palace and had a formal state dinner uh, held in his honor. During the visit, Great Britain and China agreed deals reported to be worth 30 billion pounds. According to the Campaign Against Arms Trade, which compiled data from the UK Governmental Department of Business and Skills, between January and June alone, Great Britain had exported 302 million pounds worth of military e equipment to China. On Thursday, November 5, Field Marshal Abdel Fattah al-Sisi visited Downing Street at the invitation of the Prime Minister. According to Jack Schenker, writing for the Guardian newspaper, al-Sisi has presided over the state killing of over 2,500 political opponents since, since removing his predecessor, the Muslim Brotherhood, short-lived President Morsi. Leila Suave, professor at Cairo University, told the Guardian, Sisi is the head of the most oppressive and criminal regime in Egypt uh, that I have seen during my lifetime, and I am almost 60 years. Amnesty International report that Egyptian court issued more than 1,200 death sentences in 2014, and that over 40,000 people were detained, charged, and inducted. In, in, indicted under al-Sisi in the first half of 2015. The United Kingdom sold military equipment to Egypt's autocratic regime worth 82 million pounds. But that is not all. The list goes on. Nur Sultan Nassar Bayev, president of Kazakhstan, arrived in the UK this Tuesday, November the 3rd, for a two-day visit provoking concern from human rights bodies. President Nazarbayev met with Prime Minister David Cameron and agreed to 40 trade deals with British businesses worth three billion pounds. The Queen and the Duke of York also received President Nazarbayev and his daughter Dariga Nazarbayeva, who is Kazakhstan Deputy uh, Prime Minister for lunch at Buckingham Palace. 
with a red cover and a guard of honor. Human Rights Watch states that Mr. Nasarbayev regime heavily restrict freedom of assembly, speech, and religion, and torture remains a serious problem. Torture remains common in places of detention, remains the norm. Between January and June this year, the UK saw 3.4 million pounds worth of military equipment to Kazakhstan. In response to the conservative threat of repealing the Human Rights Act and replacing it with the British Bill of Rights, Juan Mendes, UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, warned it was a dangerous and pernicious development. In an interview with The Guardian, he said that the government's proposal indicated lowering of protection for people that would leave individuals at risk of cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment and being refused asylum and deported despite facing mistreatment. He said such a move could contravene Britain's obligation under international law and set a very bad example for the rest of the world, potentially allowing a state to dilute the levels of protection for vulnerable people. Mendes said that the timing of the new Bill of Rights in the middle of a migration crisis will seem distasteful to many international observers. The Human Rights Act has improved the lives of millions of people in the United Kingdom since coming into effect just 15 years ago. For example, it has brought to account UK police for failing to investigate human trafficking and rape cases. It has forced UK law to change to prevent rape victims from being cross-examined by their attackers, establishing law the right for an independent investigation to take place following a death in prison. It helped patients to gain access to life-saving drugs and held hospitals to account when failures in mental health care had directly led to suicide. It has helped to establish that failing to properly equip British soldiers when on active duty abroad was a breach of the human right. In the mid-Stanfordshire hospital scandal, allowed for over 100 claims that gross or degrading treatment of patients mostly elderly, had caused or hastened the defeat. And to conclude, I want to say, human rights are universal and inalienable. They provide all of us with basic fundamental freedoms and enshrine the principles of equality and justice for all and allow individuals legal recourse against the state for infringements of this right. Many people, statesmen, intellectuals, judges, writers, have struggled to develop and uphold this principle in UK law for hundreds of years. With every hard-won right, that law has grown to reflect how we live and govern ourselves. Here in Great Britain, we are part of a great legal, philosophical, and ethical tradition that historically has called for more human rights to be recognized as our societies evolve. We have a strict uh, to become, strive to become progressively more just and more fair to all. If the conservatives are allowed to scrap the Human Rights Act, it will be a travesty which will undo decades, even centuries of progress. There is no doubt 
that the most vulnerable will suffer. Children, elderly people, victims of violence, refugee. We will poison our children and grandchildren's legacy by leaving the UK less fair, less just place than we found it. If the Human Rights Act is repealed, the United Kingdom will find itself on the wrong side of history. The rights, and I would like to leave you with the words of Lord Bingen in his 2009 keynote speech to liberty. The rights protected by the convention and the act deserve to be protected because they are the basic and fundamental right which everyone in this country ought to enjoy simply <coughs> by virtue of their existence as a human being. Thank you very much. I hope it was not too long. Thank you. Kate Allen to close uh, this part of the event uh, with uh, a formal thank you. Kate is uh, the director of Amnesty International UK and has been so since 2000 and was formerly uh, deputy director of the Refugee Council. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. I would just like, uh, Bianca, on behalf of everybody, and I think uh, you uh, saw that um, huge applause and, and respect for your speech, I would like to thank you on behalf of everybody for such an eloquent um, explanation of the importance of the Human Rights Act and why we must fight to keep it. Uh, Bianca is, uh, as we have heard, a human rights uh, a campaigner of long standing. She is an activist, and back in September, she and I marched together on the refugee uh, march here in London to say that refugees are welcome, and she has a long history of activism. I'm not going to keep you long from the second part of this evening, which I think involves a glass of wine on the other side of the corridor, so you'll be glad to hear that. But I just do want to say a couple of things. If you have felt completely inspired by what uh, Bianca has, has said, then join the campaign to save the Human Rights Act. This will be one of the major campaigns that Amnesty International will be involved in uh, in the coming year. So we will uh, be mobilizing our members, supporters and activists, and we have 620,000 of them here in the UK to fight uh, to keep that act. And as Bianca has explained, it is complicated for this government to abolish the act. Uh, I can't see the SNP uh, going along with this in Scotland, and it is complicated in Northern Ireland in that it is part of the Good Friday Agreement, and starting to unravel that uh, is certainly uh, a complicated and very bad um, idea. So join us uh, to save that act. We have a government with a majority of 12. We have everything to fight for. I think we can win this one, but we need everybody um, with us. Uh, and when uh, we see 
the way in which the media and some politicians uh, dissemble uh, and exaggerate about the Human Rights Act, which Bianca has so uh, brilliantly set out. We need to be clear that this is an act that protects our rights. And those stories uh, are ones that we need to confront and confront clearly. The Abu Qatada story is one that we as a country are set, we're saying we would not return somebody to torture. We should be proud to live in a country that will not return people, whoever they are, to be tortured. So we need to be clear about our stand on this. Uh, and we need to be clear that human rights were not intended to be transient ideas, to be uh, redrafted, rewritten, and removed by the government of the day. They are enduring principles, and they are all the more necessary in challenging times. And if we uh, take the take the destroy the Human Rights Act, we will send a clear message, as Bianca has said, to regimes and governments that have uh, no regard for the human rights of their populations. So join us and help us save the Human Rights Act. Thank you. Uh, on behalf of the School of Law, I'd like to thank uh, Bianca Jagger, our distinguished speaker, thank Kate Allen, and thank you all uh, for participating in this event.